Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Three, two. Welcome to the mini break. Your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, August 21st. As promised, let's get right to business. Joining me on today's podcast to help catch up on everything that unfolded at last week's weather. It's good. We got the screw up out of the way early, but here we go. Three. Sorry, Westoff. Welcome to the mini break. Your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, August 21st. Let's get right to business. We promised you a recap of all things Cincinnati with the one and only David Kane. That is why I am thrilled to welcome back onto the podcast today to help me break down all things Western and Southern Open, the returning champion here on the Mini Break Podcast feed, a man who is essentially a co-host of this show at this point. Of course, he's an editorial producer for all things tennis.com and Tennis Channel, the best beat reporter, in my opinion, we have right now in the business. It's our dear friend, David Kane, joining us once again. DK, welcome back to the show. How was life on the grounds at Cincinnati? Had to be fun to be back at an event. All those compliments. You're making me regret eating all that Grater's ice cream I packed for you. It's just, I, I enjoyed it, but now I wish I'd saved at least a, a pint of black raspberry chocolate chip for you. But otherwise, I had a really, it was a fun week in the Western and Southern Open. You know, definitely the players kept things interesting. There were a lot of hot takes and opinions coming out of the press room that I was trying to dutifully turn around. And I, I regretted not being on the podcast because for the first time in a while, I had a ton of work to promote when Gruskin inevitably. <laughs> throws me the question, David, what are you working on in the in the dead of summer post Wimbledon? And I go, mm, read baseline for articles. <laughs> I had so much stuff. So I hope everybody read it and uh, more to come starting tomorrow when I hit the US Open qualifying. Yeah, no, I love to hear that. And we are looking forward, obviously, to reading everything you write. Again, you can find them all at DKTWNS on Twitter. You can find them all at tennis.com or on baseline. We are on a time crunch here, so I'm going to be efficient in moving us from topic to topic. I do, though, think this is one of those 30,000-foot view things that we should hit here at the beginning. First of all, in terms of overrated, underrated, just quick dichotomy. As good as people say graders is, it actually is better in person. It is the one thing that always lives up to the hype. My favorite ice cream we have in the business, and I do not say that lightly. That said... That's the underrated side of things. Overrated side, Skyline Chili's not good. Like, I'm sorry, but it's just not. And I again, <laughs> delve on that where you'd like. More broadly, why I bring this up, you were on the grounds. You felt the vibes, dare I say, even though John Wertheim might have killed that term with a tweet last night. Should this event stay in Cincinnati moving forward? Because that's obviously a big discussion point right now with Ben Navarro buying the event. He's building this new facility in one of the Carolinas. I forget which one. Will this Masters 1000, WTA 1000 level event move uh, in the coming years? 
you can debate, you can weigh in on the graders skyline dichotomy, but also your thoughts on should the Western Southern open stay in Cincy. I could definitely take or leave skyline chili, but not a day went by when I wasn't trying graders ice cream. I got a lot of (laughs) intense emotion from the locals saying that I was either going to love skyline chili or I was going to hate it. And I Mm -hmm. liked it. It was good. Is it something that I'm going to go to bed dreaming about? No, but I am going to probably spend the next 364 days dreaming about graders ice cream. I thought you were going to say working it off. I'm already in the process of work. I'm I'm dressed for the gym for those, for those who realize this is not a visual podcast, but um, I'm heading off of there later when I, when my 35, Five minutes pops up but this was my second time in Cincinnati first time since 2019 and from my understanding was from last year to this year there was some attempt to build up the grounds to make it a bit more welcoming and given the fact that I believe Ben Navarro owns both tournaments right now or owns both sites right now yes. uh, it would be strange for him to perhaps be putting any money into this tournament this year if there's an attempt on his part to move it to North Carolina that certainly does seem to be the rumor and the scuttlebutt going around on the grounds and within the tennis world, there were a lot of questions being asked of players, whether they wanted the tournament to move to North Carolina, sort of a funny question for a lot of these European players who probably never heard of Ohio or North Carolina <laughs> before their career started. I mean, I don't really know what Charlotte, North Carolina means to most of these, most of these players. I would assume they might be thinking of Charleston if they're you thinking know, of anything. You mean Princess Charlotte? Like, I, you know, the daughter of Prince William? I mean, even God bless Venus Williams. I can't, I couldn't tell you the last time she was in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there's going to be like a tweet saying, "You idiot! She played Fed Cup in Charlotte in 2008 or something." I don't know. I don't remember. But all I can say is, I enjoy Cincy. It's an easy flight. Uh, it's it's within DoorDash range of Cheesecake Factory. So for me, it ticked all of my boxes, and I enjoyed the players. I enjoyed the enthusiasm from them and the enthusiasm from the fans. Really easy site to navigate. So for me, it's two thumbs up. You're not, in prime not the form. least of which to mention the graders. No, absolutely. You're in prime form. You're ready for today's show. I do wish we could have done this more last week, and that's on me, not on DK, for those of you listeners who are curious. In, I, in fairness, yeah. I was very busy. Yeah, that's true. I also owe you, though, one in-person hug because we didn't get to do that as I wasn't able to pop by the Western Southern Open. For, so for those of you keeping Somebody track did leave home, me hanging. Yeah, exactly. It, it is on me. But no, more broadly, for Midwest tennis fans to have this celebration, to get all the big dogs in a central location that is Cincinnati, you know, again, whether it's at Chicago, somewhere in the Midwest, I think it's good to have Midwest representation. It's cheaper. I would argue, than some of the other locations you have in the States to see this caliber of player. So certainly, you know, again, it's not California, it's not Miami, it's not New York, but it's Ben Navarro's tournament. And I have no doubt he's going to spend the resources to keep this event exceptional. Look at what he's done with Charleston. Look at what he's done, not just with that WTA level event, but the ITFs as well. It is certainly one of the storylines to discuss, but obviously, All that off-court noise overshadowed by what we saw on the court. And I offered, let the the record show, I offered DK the opportunity to hop on last night's emergency podcast. Now, it was not recorded at the most convenient of times, so I completely understood why he deferred to the second half, a.k.a. recording here on Monday. That said, Djokovic, Alcaraz, I know we've seen that script play out before, that Novak down, seemingly out. You know, again, he pulls the rabbit out of the hat. He comes back, wins the match in three sets. My spin on that match, though, and this is where I want to start today with our tennis analysis. And, you know, again, it's not about what happened on the court, although we can get into the tactics a little bit. To me, it's the broader narrative. It's for the first time ever, in my opinion, even more so than Stan. Now, I don't consider Andy Murray post-2016 
in this con- you know the big four run was a different run 2011 to 2016 and Andy Murray could challenge the big three with consistency at every event I know we've had the Stan Wawrinka flashes where he's given Djokovic the business at slams but this feels like for the first time really in the big three big four era that someone who isn't one of those players is a worthy challenger for one of the big three guys that Carlos Alcaraz, who of course we have already deemed the heir apparent, but he's on the level already. And he is, you know, again, pushing and showing the consistency for a world number one and beating the best guys or competing against them exceptionally in the biggest moments with more consistency than a Medvedev ever did, than a Zverev ever did, than a Tsitsipas ever did. All of these challengers, even Dimitrov, Nishikori, Chil. Uh, Chilich is the interesting case. We can leave that out for now. But it just feels like that was my biggest takeaway. Uh, coming off of Djokovic Alcaraz, for the first time maybe ever, the big three has a challenger. And that's just unequivocally the biggest storyline heading into New York, is it not? That was my takeaway from the final. What's your reaction? Well, I mean, first of all, I want to apologize to all of my fan who may have been <laughs> expecting an intense reaction, an emergency reaction, if you will, to the match yesterday. But but to your point, while I agree with that point, I don't know if ne- that was necessarily the takeaway from this final, because I feel like that has been the takeaway. And so that's p- partly why I didn't consider it to be an emergency reaction, because it, all it did was confirm that which we knew to be true. I mean, you talk about post-2016. I mean, even, even among the big three, I would say the biggest challenger to Djokovic in the last five years has been specifically Rafa at the French. I mean, mm. I think he's been pretty much the presumptive favorite at the other three majors, barring, you know, obviously the big spike in form from Rafa early last year, you know, there has not been a player to bring that form and power and athleticism and consistency as Alcaraz and just the lightning speed with which he has progressed. I mean, we go back to the, the evolution of the Federer Nadal rivalry from the 06 Wimbledon to 08 Wimbledon. It feels like Alcaraz has made that kind of a stride in the space of less than a month from Roland Garros to Wimbledon. In my opinion, it's probably a match that Alcaraz probably should have finished in two sets. Djokovic seems quite over, overwhelmed by the heat, was able to come back, force a third. Alcaraz, you know, injures his hand in frustration, which is perhaps a new wrinkle to this. We're not used to seeing smiley, happy Carlos Alcaraz doing that sort of thing. And perhaps that's, you know, just an illustration of the amount of pressure he's feeling to bring his best against the very best and knowing that he is the primary rival to this legendary figure. But it was certainly a must-win match for Djokovic coming out of Wimbledon to come into Cincinnati before the U.S. Open, a tournament where he hasn't had as much success as Wimbledon, to at least remind the field that he is still very much right there with Alcaraz. And I think this is probably the inflection point at which they are going to be at their closest because Alcaraz is only going to get better and Djokovic, you would think, is only going to get older. So this is this is a very exciting time in men's tennis. You mentioned biggest challengers to Djokovic. Nadal is one. You forgot an obvious one, vaccine mandates, which got the better of him for these past few seasons. That's been his other biggest opponent. You mean science? But... Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Go my after old, D- my DKT old enemy, science. Yeah. <laughs> Alligators listening in, DKT, or crocodiles, whatever it is, DKT double NS. He, you know, again, I made the light joke. He brought it to science. Um, But that was a good one. DK. The phrase you use that's most fascinating to me there is must win. When was the last time a non-slam match could even possibly be construed by, dare I say, one of the smartest brains in the business in DK? You're not going to say a must win scenario for Djokovic lightly. And it's hard to argue that you're wrong. Now, 
that's the most hyperbolic form of the phrasing. I don't know if it was a must, must win because, you know, U.S. Open is still three out of five sets and Djokovic is still freaking Djokovic. But there would certainly have been a lot of noise. And I wonder even if betting odds makers would have made Alcaraz the favorite at the U.S. Open had he won two in a row, especially Especially if it had been in two sets. Exactly. I think at the point at which it became must win or must, you know, come back. uh, Yes, or a confidence-inspiring sort of moment. He had to at least come back and win that that second set. Well, obviously, at the point where it gets to that third set tiebreaker, you flip a coin. Although, of course, you know, Nadal, uh, Djokovic did lead five four, had those match points. That would have been a bit of a of a gut punch for Djokovic if he doesn't win after having all those opportunities. But you know, all of that said, I think this is you know, it's it was an important one for him, especially after losing Wimbledon. I think we're certainly going to elevate the importance of Cincinnati, perhaps in a way that's dis- disproportionate to reality. I'm sure Djokovic would have preferred to win Wimbledon and give up Cincinnati, but at least coming into the last major of the year, he wants to certainly reassert himself as very much in the conversation. Yeah, and what's so fascinating about this one in particular was Alcaraz wasn't playing his best in that first set. Now, or all four, week. Yeah, he's played eight three-set matches during this North American back-to-back 1,000-level run. Like, guy got his court time in. Credit him. Got the money's worth. His forehand was the biggest weapon on, and the most effective weapon on the court against Novak freaking Djokovic. And look, when Alcaraz is playing his best, yes, that forehand could be the best weapon on the court against anyone, but that when both guys weren't playing their best, it was Alcaraz who had the trait that stood out in set number one and to watch Djokovic just continue to struggle, not just with the conditions, but with his return of serve, which of course has been the bread and butter for him throughout the course of his career. That was striking. That was notable. But, you know, again, tactically, I think Djokovic went park the bus, as they say in soccer or football, in everything first strike, everything early in the rallies is going through your backhand corner. And if Carlos wanted to be bold enough to run around that ball, hit a forehand, great. But Djokovic was locked in on that on-the-run forehand cross-court, taking every bit of space and every easy opportunity to attack that Alcaraz provided him. I said this last night. I went back and watched the film early this morning because I'm not watching enough tennis in Cleveland. I got to watch additional film as well here, DK, to get ready for the U.S. Open. Um, and I, mean, by I the was way, watching Housewives, so yeah, I don't know what you were doing. <laughs> DK doesn't know this, but this is his first of multiple appearances on the podcast this week. Just so you know, like clear the schedule, DK. I need you for the Open. Um, yeah, uh, that – I mean, he ripped off the shirt. Like, he said it in the post-match press conference. If you don't want to take my and DK's word for it, and this is where we can end our analysis here. I know we didn't go deep into the tactics. I thought there was a lot of serve body from Djokovic into Alcaraz, just not giving, you know, forcing Alcaraz to have to make the choice on the return of serve and subsequently open up the easy lane of attack for Novak. And that was the key, taking easy lanes of attacks. But more than anything... Listen to Novak after the match. It felt like a Grand Slam final. That's a direct quote from him. It felt like early in my career when I faced Nadal. Now, I may have added a word or two there, but that was essentially what he said in his post-match press conference. This one mattered. Like, I just, you know, again, best two out of three set men's match we've ever seen. I don't need that conversation right now. In the context, yeah, well, I'll let others have that conversation, I should say. Where I think it matters is, and this is stepping on some U.S. Open stuff, but it's like, it's very clearly Djokovic is 1A going into New York, Alcaraz is 1B, and that's your tier one. And I think what this Cincinnati tournament does is just kind of say, like, if someone else emerges, Medvedev, Sinner, they've been great, and they're tier two, 
But there has to be a distinction now between those two and the rest of the field, right? And I know we were headed that way, but it's like, no, no, no. This is because after Medvedev I've had the great first third of the season. Why I'm running on is that DK gave me a look. That's why I think this was definitive. Yeah, no, I know. I would say since Wimbledon. I mean, maybe with, yeah, you'd sure. want to say Paris, but based on the way that the semifinal ended between Djokovic and Alcaraz, maybe you weren't willing to make that distinction yet. Uh, certainly after Wimbledon. And, and, and they were on the... the same side of the draw then. And it's like, no, no, now they're one and two. It's like we right. cleared out all the riffraff. Yeah. I mean, we want, I would certainly like to see Medvedev pull back and pull up and, sure. and be that third spoiler in, in either half for as a potential semifinal opponent. But I, I, I did see um, an interesting stat or an interesting musing from our, our statistical Oracle Oleg noting that Medvedev <laughs> does tend to play his best in five month spurts. And typically they happen in the back half and perhaps this year it began in the front half and we're starting to see maybe him sputter a little bit, which is unfortunate because he, I think he is, you know, that great spoiler to this otherwise very, you know, technically athletically proficient rivalry. I mean, it is the closest we're seeing to textbook between two players, you know, how to win modern tennis. This is what we're seeing. I think Djokovic is still technically superior. And I think Alcaraz brings a tremendous weight of shot. So that's perhaps that's the contrast, that extra oomph uh, in the Alcaraz game. But I think, yeah, it would be, it's hard to imagine anybody else, you know, in the U.S. Open final other than these two at this moment. But, you know, a lot can happen in the next two and a half weeks. Well, I'm glad you brought up that sentiment in particular, because my next question to you was you were on the grounds and you got the opportunity to see a lot of in-person tennis. You got a feel for how these players are feeling in the press conference. Anyone else stand out to you throughout the course of the week for those that don't remember who be Hercots? takes the opening set again against Alcaraz in their semifinal matches, two losses in this North American hardcore stretch, both to Alcaraz in three, not the worst place to be for Hubi, who against semifinals here this week. He who must not be named to David Kane, Alex Zverev, of course, who I'm referring to beats Medvedev after that head to head had really flipped in the other direction. And, you know, again, played a pretty good match, I guess, against Djokovic in the semi. He's clearly back in top 10 for maybe not quite where he was when he got injured. But I guess my question is, if you're trying to make a list, top five, top 10, and obviously that's an exercise we'll do this week. Is there anyone else who stood out to you? You know, Fritz, a quarter finalist. I'm, I'm just throwing these names at you. I'm going to shut up now. Who stood out? Who were yeah, the, honestly, this just guy let me, was Let good. me say Tommy Paul yeah. already. Like, I'm yeah, waiting. Yeah, okay, DK Cook. No, I certainly, got five I, minutes here. Yeah, Cook. I certainly wanted to be even more impressed by Tommy Paul. I mean, that was a very wacky schmacky match. I mean, <laughs> the amount of times that Tommy Paul led by a break and, and and I don't know how many of the sets that he played, it really certainly felt like a huge opportunity for an American guy to say, hey, I have Carlos Alcaraz's number. And as it stands, he beats him in Canada and was very close to beating him uh, in Cincinnati. Obviously got a really raw end of it in terms of the weather in that third set coming on and off the court. I don't know how many times I think ultimately just it broke Paul towards the end, but I I do think the way that he's playing the aggressive mindset coming to net, the fact that he has beaten Alcaraz twice, I do think matters right now because I think you, what we're witnessing right now is a reticence from the field, which is impressive to keep Alcaraz from running up the score too high because we don't, I think if you're the field, you don't want another big three guy situation. You want to feel that as good as Alcaraz is, I could still compete with him. I could still beat him. And I think that's what we're seeing from the last two weeks. I did ask Carlos if he felt like the field was raising his game or raising their game to play him, or did, did they feel like he was perhaps flagging a little bit and needed to come up? And he felt it was a little bit of a mix of both, which of course isn't a super satisfying answer, but is it, it is a testament to the fact that things as impressive as Alcaraz can be and has been, 
is not very, it's not completely settled into being the number one guy right now in a way that Djokovic has had, I don't know how many decades of experience in being. So I think his half of the draw will be the more interesting one, depending on which floaters end up in his half. But again, best of five, you certainly would give Alcaraz even more of an edge there at this point. So it's it's tough to say anyone with any certainty, but obviously the way Tommy Paul was able to play him in the last two weeks gives me some some degree of pause. Tommy's just a primetime performer. It just feels like the more athletic, the more – it's so great. It, it really is because he can do all these different things. I said it during Canada, him, Davidovich Fokina, and – demon hour just like these athletes we have like these are real athletes how you like how I suck demon demon yeah you like i suck him in i knew you, you like you, that you buttered me up with the first two and then went with my best friend alex yeah. demon hour. <laughs> like, I, you know again 10 days in the making i've been waiting to brag about what happened in canada uh. so this is my time to get it in but again i'm trying to be economical in our allocation of time look at those words that was a great sentence i feel great about that no, sentence, we have a lot DK. of time to grovel about coco golf yeah what? Like that's yeah. coming West off, leave that Whew. in. Um, <laughs> all right, we're going to rapid fire then through these last two. Panic button. You just tell me in 30 seconds or less how you're feeling these three guys. The three R's. Casper Root. Not great, although I didn't feel great about him before the French and he made the final. So, I mean, he's someone who has shown up for every other slam for the last two years. And we're on every other slam right now. Jam tomorrow, jam yesterday, but never jam today. I feel like he's perhaps going to turn things around at the U.S. Open. Played so well there last year, but it may be draw dependent on how well he does. Yeah, Purcell had a really good week, which kind of redeemed what happened. And, you know, again, very good. Well, Davidovich Fokina, same thing, like last week. And those are the two guys who beat Rude, both, by the way, in three sets, one six four in the third, the other seven six in the third. Rare moment for us. We're going to switch gears. I'm not concerned. Like, Casper's a three out of five guy. Like, it's just the more physical, the longer the match, the more things work themselves up in his high percentage direction. So I would say he's the, uh, of the three R's, Rude, Rublev, Runa, he's who I'm least worried about. Where are you with Andre Rublev, who, again, has had a really good year, did not have a good North American stretch? Where am I? I mean, I think I where I think I think I'm where I am basically since the French, you know, just, sure. you know, he was he made this big leap forward ostensibly by winning the first Masters title, you know, played pretty well at Wimbledon. <sighs> you know, I I don't think he's there yet. And I don't think I've really seen anything this summer to make me think that he's any closer to breaking that, you know, that Grand Slam duck. Yeah, and again, he lost 7-6 in the third uh, this past week, uh, I believe, to what, uh, to Emil Rusevori, who you know yeah. I'm a fan of. Yeah, we <laughs> don't have to do one. the Rusevori <laughs> conversation. Straight set lost to Mackey the week before, but Mackey just kind of has those moments. I agree. I'm status quo with Rublev. Like, he, I'm a little concerned, but, like, concerned in the sense of anyone who thinks he's unequivocal tier two, tier one sniffing sort of guy. Like, that's not Rublev. He's, he's got to get to the second week. I'd say quarterfinals is probably the ceiling. The guy I'm most concerned about is Holger, just because there's injuries added to the mix as well. And, you know, again, he was a guy who was pretty clear, you know, again, in a year where it's been a murky top eight beyond the top three or four guys, you throw Medvedev Sinner in after that, it's kind of just been a wishwash who's hot in any given month. Runa's been pretty firm, like, no, I'm right up there with Sinner with the rest of these guys in terms of consistency at the big events. Is it injury related? What what were your what were your uh, gatherings from the grounds? I mean, it was hard to really take stock of any individual injury in Cincy because that was the other storyline low key yeah. from the tournament, which is how many retirements, withdrawals, you know, just surprising things popping up, and it was hard to tell if it was just 
the circumstances, if it was the ball, there was also a lot of, you know, um, again, more tennis ball conversation about how mm. this extra duty ball was faring on this surface and perhaps some of the, the shoulder complaints players mm -hmm. were starting to feel as a result of the extra duty ball, whether Andre Jabor was joking about it or being serious about it or not. So it, it was hard to really dig in on just how injured anyone was. But that said, there is a good, you know, 10 days before the first round. Holger Rune didn't have a great summer last year. So it's, I feel like, again, with, with three out of five, with probably a decent first two rounds, I think I would only start to panic if it's a really rough US Open for him. Because I think right now he's still in playing with house money and has obviously a big fall in front of him to defend and perhaps, you know, a first ATP finals to end the year with. So I think there's still plenty of op opportunities for optimism for him. I agree. 30,000 foot view, no concern with Runa. 2023 U.S. Open foot view, many concerns with Hogaruna. Like that's going to be the top seed where depending on what the draw looks like, early exit, whatever it may be, uh, that's what I'm going to be on the lookout for. That said, moving beyond that, you know, again, quick, cute things. Ready? This is a true rapid fire. And then we're moving on to the women's side because obviously we got things to discuss there. I think I just uh, got distracted by my boyfriend Westoff behind you. Yeah, so I don't, hold on. That's it. Yeah. See, I got to recover was, myself. You know what? I was literally afraid that was going to happen. That I was like, dude, Westoff, you can't walk by when it's DKA on the mic. Like, we're going to lose the thread here. It's just a, uh, fl a flicker. <laughs> sends his love. By the way, oh, I hear it in the background. You. Yeah. All my love, all my love back, and then some. yeah, I told him in the car. I was like, "You might want to join this pod." Um, Stan winning matches, cute. Popperin quarterfinal, top fifty. His serve, his forehand. They should be there. Cute. Rusevori is going to be on my dark horse list come the U.S. Open. Cute. Uh, those are my men's cute things. Did I miss anything? You ready to move on? I'll just add that cute next to gorgeous. Gorgeous is going to you know devour cute in the words of Tiffany New York Pollard. <laughs> That's why we have you on the show. See this? Who doesn't know the words from Tiffany Heather Pollard? Like, come on. Who, who doesn't know that quote? Um, all right. We all love New York. Yeah. <laughs> I love New York. Great show. R.I.P. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the rare. I mean, I didn't watch it, but oh. it, it was. That's the flavor. I, lo I love when he lies to me, ladies and gentlemen. No, I, I didn't watch it religiously. Like, do I what know? What were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Lock back in. Um, Goff Pagula. I, I the reason I'm mixing the two is because again we don't uh, two Americans win the two North American one thousand level events. Now there's some the big mo. There is momentum for American women's tennis, non Serena momentum heading into this U.S. Open. And look, we've had the Pagula conversation before, so we don't need to rehash that. I do think you can make a pretty good art. You know what? We're gonna save Pagula versus Jabur round seven of who's had the better career thus far to a different time. Um, but it's a really fun argument in my mind. Um, it's the one I would it's be It's not having. a fun argument for everybody. Some people yeah. don't have a lot of fun making that argument, but well, I do. <laughs> when we open up a tennis barber shop someday, DK, those are the conversations we're exclusively having. That said, the amazing conversation is now about Coco Goff, who has just put together a real run. Like, this isn't a fake run. This one's real, folks. You win DC, which, of course, surface level is already a 500-level event. But, you know, again, to do it in the fashion that she did, beating Benchich, beating Sakari, beating these top 12 players, quarterfinals in Canada, lost to the eventual champion, Pagula, now comes here to Cincinnati. And, you know, again, for her to not just beat the players she was supposed to beat early in the event, but to beat Iga Swiatek whom she was 0-7 against. And by the way, was down a break in that first set. Iga probably should have won that match in straight sets. We can get into that in a second. She didn't. Coco Goff is through and three. Follows that up with a pretty 
definitive three and four win over Muhova in the final. Look, a lot has been made. The hoopla. She's now working with Brad Gilbert. Obviously, anytime you bring in a new coach and you have a run like this, it's easy to ascribe that success directly to BG. But I've been saying it all. I said this on yesterday's show, and I'm glad I get to say this to you now because we've been having this debate. Have I not said to you, DK, at times this year, Coco Goff has gotten better. Coco Goff now doesn't lose to people she's not supposed to lose to. The the big thing was always, again, beating those top 20, beating those top 10 foes. Pretty sure she's 9-6 and six against the top 20 now this season, DK. You know, again, that win total against top 20 foes is a top 5 number amongst top 50 players on the WTA Tour. What did it feel like in person? Did it feel like something had changed? What were your takeaways from this moment for Coco Goff here this summer? We have been debating Coco Goff all year, and I will be the first to say that I have been a little bit negative. I've been a little bit (laughs) uncertain that the train was really on the tracks, especially after Wimbledon, because yes, to your point, Coco had gotten very good at beating, beating players she was supposed to beat, but she had appeared to, at her best, hit a ceiling and was unable to beat those that she would absolutely have to beat if she wanted to win a Grand Slam. And coming out of Wimbledon, it started to feel like her ability to beat players she was supposed to beat was suddenly in question. And so for much of this summer, my question was, had she gotten back to where she was or had she gotten better? Because, I mean, either of those would have been a victory for her to get based on where she was after Wimbledon to just get back to where she was at the start of the year in such a short period of time. Fantastic. Well done. But there were still some major flaws in her game ostensibly. And you're thinking, you know, is this perhaps a bit out of control coming to the US Open this day that, oh my God, she's so much better now, but is she just where she was? I mean, listen, you, coming out of Cincy, I have a lot of, I often have a lot of, you know, um, expectations or litmus tests. She passed all of them. I mean, there's nothing narratively speaking that Ika could have, uh, that, sorry, that Coco could have done to, to top this, she wins her the biggest title of her career. She beats Iga to do it, you know, and wins the final comprehensively against Mukova. I mean, this is, I don't, I can't remember the last player I've seen really. I mean, obviously Sabalenka mentally, which she was able to do at the Australian Open earlier this year, but to, for someone to really revamp their game technically, tactically, you know, a, a fundamental shift. It's not just a mental shift, a little a little quite flip, flip of the switch. This is a, an overhaul that we're seeing in progress and already yield some phenomenal results. And again, I will be the first to say, I did not see this happening. I certainly didn't see it happening this soon. But for someone who I've always given tremendous kudos to is just being so incredibly smart, present, such a, an eloquent speaker, you know, a phenomenal athlete, great backhand, a really good serve, we were just missing one or two pieces of the puzzle and she really, she found them and she shoved them into that board, you know, with, with amazing alacrity. So all of which to say, I am very much looking forward to seeing her at the U S open. I think that she is dialed in, in a way that I don't think we've ever seen, even when she was making the French open final last year, that I think that was certainly a lot of things had to happen for that to roll through for her. And I think this is, if she makes another grandstand final to be, it'll be because of these improvements. So I've, I feel like you had another question in there, but otherwise I'm well, just, I'm really impressed by Coco. No, that that was what I was looking for. I just feel like she uses her speed more oh. aggressively now. She beats her to the, sp- it beats you to the spot. I also thought, and it wasn't the best day for Iga's forehand, but I thought she beat Iga backhand to backhand, like pretty straight up. And to do that against Iga Sviantek, even for one match, like, 
it, it was extraordinarily impressive. And it's it's who she beat. It's not like she yeah, beat Sapolinka, exactly. who's been having you know an up and down summer. It's not like she beat Rabakina, who's been injured. She beat the inform number one Iga Shvantec. But I want to say never fully inform, but not a bad version of Iga either. I'd say inform. I wouldn't say unbeatable, but I would sure, say inform. Sure, sure, fair know? enough. And I and listen, I think the way Coco's handled this season, it's sort of like a figure skater debuting a new move. Like she went to a small tournament and she <laughs> won. And then yeah. she she showed off a little bit, you know, at, at at her first big tournament of the year, and you know some some hitches, but played good three sets against Jesse Pagula, and then comes to Cincy and just rockets through it, you know. And I think she's setting herself up in really good stead for the proverbial World Championships or U.S. Open in this situation. See, this it took us thirty one minutes to get our first figure skating analogy. I had a full okay. like analogy. It's like very much Elizabeth Tukhtimishva debuting the triple axel in twenty fifteen. Like she went to that good. small regional competition, she went to another one, and then she went to Worlds, and she bam, just hit it. That's who doesn't remember that almost as memorable as the Tiffany, whatever her last name was quote. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, you want, you wonder why I hit on Phil Fama, not you. <laughs> I've listened to the joke. I laughed to the joke. I even remembered the joke. Would Phil and ever you call dug me about the joke? Yeah, but would he ever call back? <laughs> Phil wouldn't even give you the luxury of a callback. I... Probably not. He would have yeah. just furrowed his, his tremendous eyebrows at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah shaking that dong. Uh, like uh, the, 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 the booty, excuse me. Um, uh, and yeah, anyways, leave it in. Um, which. Anyways, um, level of confidence transition of all time. You brought up Sabalenka. Obviously, we've talked about Iga, who, for what it's worth, like semifinal, semifinal, two three-set losses really could have beaten both Pagula and Goff. And again, I don't think she's playing her best. I think she came out and did the job she needed to do to prepare for New York. I, my level of uh, concern is zero. My level of confidence for Iga, she's still my top contender heading into the U.S. Open. Similarly, you know, for Sabalenka, I really wanted to see her make the semifinals. I wanted to see her beat, a, uh, not necessarily a blue chipper, but a top tenner. And she does that in Jabir, obviously, in the quarters. She, you know, no one, you might say, you might be thinking at home, Sabalenka didn't play well. Just look at Sabalenka's body language after she beats Jabir. She was like, I've never seen someone more furious after a victory and just seemingly frustrated with her level, as you alluded to. But Again, the big question, level of confidence in Iga Sabalenka heading into New York. You got to see them. You got to speak with them. You were on the Iga beat this week and did a fantastic job. I was not, Talk me through it. Not for want of, you know, not on purpose. I mean, Iga <laughs> came to press every day and delivered what I was calling like arms crossed hmm, news. Like there was just like a lot of like mic dropping happening yeah. from Iga Svantec. Somewhat unprompted, sometimes prompted. She came in suppressed after her, I believe it was her third round with an announcement that she was getting a lot of hate from fans, from, from, from herself and to her team about, you know, people being too hypercritical of her, even when she loses a set. It was after she beat Jung Chin Wen that, that there's just too much of this. And we as journalists have to, you know, let, let it be known that this is not acceptable, which it's not to be fair. Obviously, obviously everybody knows that it was very soon after her match. Clearly she'd been on social media or somebody had told her because she did mention there was stuff about her team and who but her team could have told her about that. Sure. And that was, you know, on the heels of her not being super happy with her Netflix episode, feeling like there were elements of the ep- of her year last year that were left out, mainly her 2022 Krakow exhibition uh, for the people of Ukraine. And I then asked her the day after, I mean, you're not happy with the, the 
the stuff about your team. You're not happy with your Netflix episode. Your team was in the Netflix episode. Are you, do those two things have anything to do with one another? And she brings up the, the infamous haircut scene in which Daria is seen, uh, her sports psychologist, Daria Bromowitz is seen seemingly dictating uh, Iga's haircut. But what Iga was wanted to speak to specifically was her sarcastic response. And she'd gotten a lot of criticism, she claims, for it being sarcastic and disrespectful. I don't know if that was necessarily my takeaway from it, but it was certainly her takeaway that she wanted to make it clear that this was a sarcastic comment, not something to be taken seriously. Again, not something I would, <laughs> not something I took from that. But um, she was in a weird mood. I mean, she had a lot to say. She had a lot of opinions about seemingly everything seemingly everything from the scheduling, late finishes, the balls, Netflix, online harassment, you know, it was, everything was on the table for Riga. So as someone who was reporting the news, she certainly delivered a lot of news. So it didn't totally surprise me that she didn't win the tournament because I don't feel like that energy was conducive to winning the requisite number of matches. I was certainly surprised it happened against Coco, uh, especially after she won the second set and had a break in the third. You think this is a match that Iga figures out and good for Coco for winning a set. I certainly put Iga in better stead than a Sabalenka, who just has not been, it just feels like she's white knuckling this right now. Like she was okay. so clear and so strong at the start of the season, probably through Stuttgart and maybe through Madrid rather. And since then, I feel like it's been a lot on fumes. You don't feel that same confidence in her game. She doesn't seem as confident in the serve in the game. Perhaps got a little lucky at the end of that match against Shabur. Shabur gets injured. She should have beaten Mukova. I mean, she was <laughs> in such a position to win that match. And Mukova takes that out from under her. Obviously great for Mukova to be able to continue the momentum that she had started to build up in Paris, you know, to perhaps take this into the US Open with a top 10 debut. All of which to say, I rank Iga certainly ahead of, of Arena. But coming out of Cincy, I, I feel a bit meh about, or question mark about both of them. I feel like for Iga, it's getting everything out. Again, experiencing a little bit of everything, whether it be what you mentioned in press, whether it be, again, all these three-set matches she was forced to play throughout the course of these two weeks. There were times when it was just so much one speed from Iga. And then there were times she was like, wait a second, I'm also faster, fitter, and can do more things than you on the court. And showed that off at times as well. I do, again, think the forehand betrayed her a little bit throughout the course of the event, but... I have zero concern about Iga's level. I think it, she mentioned it. She said it after a match. I'm actually very much looking forward to a couple of days off. I'm looking forward to getting a nice meal, doing all these things. I'm very confident in Iga Shviantek. Uh You have a final thought? Yeah, just that it was also weird conditions. I think Daniel Medvedev yeah. brought it up pretty specifically, the fact that if, if you're not super precise on every ball – it dies. And I think yeah. Jessica, Jessica Pagula also had an interesting remark about why there were a lot of like big comebacks, you know, mentioning Kalina's 5-1 lead over mm -hmm. Jabur that evaporated. Just like it could be so easy to go off the boil in those conditions in Cincinnati in a way that it perhaps won't be at the U.S. Open. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. And, you know, again, I there are a lot of things I want to chat with that we got to rapid fire through here because Westoff's given me the point at the watch. We got to go and see a little bit, Alex. Um, so we're going to rapid fire. Westoff through. wants to make gestures at me. That's fine, but yeah, whatever. No, it's to both. Yeah. To you, it's two thumbs up. Um, anyways, you want to rapid fire through the cute things with me? Oh, cute. Do you want, next to gorgeous. Do you, do you, yeah. Do you want more input on the cute things this time? I feel like I kind of brushed you off for the Cincinnati cute things. We can um, play cute or gorgeous. You tell me if I think okay. it's cute or gorgeous. All right, let's do it. Cute You're or welcome. gorgeous it is. Carolina Mukova's week. Cute or gorgeous? It's cute. I mean, yeah. maybe if she'd won the title, I would say gorgeous. But, you know, good for her. A solid run. Let's see her do it again in another slam. Got the retirement from Boshkova. Loved seeing her beat Sabalenka the way she did in three sets. The steadiness, the totality of things she can do. Again, 
a little bit of everything out of Mukova. I thought there's a little Spider-Man meme aspects to that final had both players been in top form, but more than anything, it's just consolidation. A reminder, when Mukova's healthy, she is a top 20, if not better, player in the world, and that's what this week was. I agree with you, cute, not gorgeous. Boshkova is just cute. I don't even need to ask her making the quarterfinal. She was under 500 for the year. Like this quarterfinal and her round of 16 at Wimbledon are why she hasn't fallen out of the top 50. And it's just like, it's, it's pretty clutch. So I thought that was cute. Danielle Collins. Adorable. I would say. I I didn't speak to her last week. Ooh. And he, well, we'll get to that in a second. I speak to her and I spoke to Collins, but go on. (laughs) Good. Danielle Collins, her run this week, two losses, uh, two weeks, two losses to Iga, but it's feeling a little gorgeous, DK. Like I feel like we could get a, D, a, a DC run in New York. She is feeling herself. She's feeling yeah. back to normal. And I, mean, I said that to her right away. It's, it just seems like you're back in your body and you're feeling like your old self. And she said, absolutely. And she is in a great headspace. She's got a good coach, Jared Jacobs, by her side, feeling a lot of confidence. And even though things ended not great <laughs> against Ika and Cincy, I would not put it past her for her to maintain these good vibes, at least for the US Open. I agree. Two us to Ika, it's like, okay, but... That's taking the toughest test. You know, again, everyone else is in regular math and you're in AP AP stats or whatever it is. In, that in wildly bad... different conditions. By the way, that was the bad season. analogy because AP stats is a joke. Um, I mean, it, again, it's some sort of AP literacy or honestly AP chemistry. I still have nightmares about AP <laughs> chemistry. That's when I was like, mom, I'm not being a doctor. I was like, I don't care if it's polar, nonpolar, covalent, whatever. As long as you know what's going on with my body, that's fine. Um, all right. Cute or gorgeous. Venus over Kudermatova. Cute. I mean, yeah, it's like it's, not, cute. it's, it's yeah, uncute it's cute. of Kudermatova, but it's yeah. cute for Venus that she was able to win that match, and she was in a great. She was also in a great mood after she beat Kudermatova. I think maybe she doesn't didn't see that coming that she yeah. still had it in her to beat a top twenty player, perhaps just based off of the lack of match play for the year. But if you're Kudermatova, not great. <laughs> they couldn't figure that one out. And sort of, I watched that match. Yeah. I still don't know how it happened. Like I agree. By the way, I think we might have to bring cuter gorgeous to, to every pod we have you on because this is fun. Um, Paulini. Cute or gorgeous? Cute. It's cute. Cor- I mean, yes, it's both. Kobe was trying to really hype up Paolini. She was like, no, no, she's a really aggressive player. I'm like, all right, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last one. Is Linda Nascova going to be on your dark horse list at come the U.S. Open? Because she screams DK. Yeah. I mean, I think she is more, con- she's technically more interesting to me than the Ferbatova sisters. I just think that there's mm-hmm. a better foundation there, but she still hasn't had like the win yet that I'm looking for. And it feels like it's going to happen sooner rather than later, but it hasn't happened yet. So it's still, it's still cute. We're bordering on adorable. I don't know if we're gorgeous yet. Uh, my poker chips are in. Uh, I'm just a believer in this hand that I've been dealt in Linda Noskova. Other side of the equation. Again, rapid fire through the concerns. Although I'm afraid I'm about to open up your second. Uh, I don't know if you wrote a first thesis, but this might be a good thesis or dissertation for you. Should you want to go get that PhD? And I call you Dr. Dave Potapova concern level. I mean, God bless her. I mean, she had that ankle injury <laughs> earlier this summer. I don't know if she's all the way there. Played a very weird match against Celine Naif in the first in the first round that she managed to figure out. You know, was up. She was up. Uh, had some kind of lead against Mondrian. I think four one, four two, and I don't think she won another game after that. But um, you know, I think if she wins a round at the U.S. Open, that's a success. If she makes a third round, that's even better. And I think for her, she's looking to make a second week. That's sort of unfortunately where she is right now in terms of expectations. So you want to see her push through. I don't necessarily think it'll happen in New York, but you know, not as not as strong as she was at the start of the year for sure. Caroline Garcia. Uh, I I don't know if I have concern. I just feel yeah. nothing. I just Regression. think we're in that. We're, yeah, I just feel like we're in this point with Garcia where you know she's trying to back up a big year and 
didn't do it the last time and doesn't really seem any closer to doing it this time, unfortunately. I like it. You got to see this in person. I know it was a storyline you were following after she added Wimfacet to her team. Junction went. Thoughts? I I mean, I was surprised to hear that the hitch on the serve was nerves or Mm -hmm. some kind of something that wasn't being taught. You don't hear players talk about that when they're having issues technically like that. They don't, they don't cop to, and I don't know if Jung Chiman expected me to ask her about it, but (laughs) she tried to fix it against Iga. The serve looked smoother, but it also wasn't perhaps as effective even as it was against Venus in the previous round. So I don't know what she's going to come up with in New York. Um, You certainly give her a lot of, grace to figure things out with Wim Fizet, who's a phenomenal coach and has molded the likes of Jung Chin Wen with other players. So I, I think that's a long-term investment still, but um, it was a, you know, a weird up and down week for her all told. All right. I like it. Last two questions for you. Best press interaction you had. Um, I mean, talking to Jesse Pagula about Cotton Eye Joe is like really fun because yeah. she was able to like see the absurdity in it. I think if any, for that to happen to anyone, I'm glad it happened to her because she at least had the cultural memory yeah. of Cotton Eye Joe. I was like, well, did you have to do the dance when you were young? She was like, of course I had to do the dance. <laughs> and I was like, can you do it now? And like, not like now, now, but she was like, yeah, I mean, like Where it would come, come back come to from? me. Cat, not Joe. I mean, like, oh, she clearly didn't attend of, enough bar mitzvahs. Yeah, I mean, the week in which Planet of the Base drops, that parody Eurodance oh, song. Oh, here we go. Very much, we're in, a, we're in a zeitgeist right now. And I also enjoyed interactions with um, Arena Sabalenka after her quarterfinal um, in, against Anjabor. I mean, I think in general, it, I started to come to this idea of how, um, you know, players who will look you in the eye are players who will say hi to you when you say hi, when you say hi to them. They're just, And that's a very short list. <laughs> and Arena's on that list. Um, I saw a junction went to the airport and I waved at her until she, until I forced her to wave back at me. I was like, we're going to have this interaction. We just spoke in a conversation. Yeah, I know love you. It. Love it. I tried, love I it. tried to explain to junction when what serving tea meant. I said, okay. do you know the joke of serving tea? Yeah. She said, no, Nike gave me the shirt. And I said, well, sometimes like serving tea can mean like, you know, to gossip, gossip or yeah. to tell the truth about someone. And she just looked at me and went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what to say to that. I was just like, well, that's something you can use in your everyday life. You're welcome. <laughs> like that no by the way whenever i hear the line when the rhythm is glad there's nothing to be sad i'm pretty sure you wrote that on a pod you've said that on this show like in the how past. does it mean <laughs> yeah this is this is a very good point best piece one thing you wrote from the week that everyone should go back and read i know there's a lot of good stuff but one interview where you're like trust me you'll like this one i mean the vika azarenka yeah. azarenka has the right answer it. that yeah. was that was one i was really pleased with because she was in a mood you know she yeah. just I, I, the evolution of Victoria Azarenka to like from press conference poison, I think one would say in her 2011, 2012 days where she wasn't filling the room to just being one of the go-to voices on the players council, just one who you can ask about anything on tour. And she's going to give a thoughtful, interesting answer. You know, I think we have Son Stevens, who's been an interesting one as, as a player council member, Jesse Bagula as well, but I think Vic- Victoria Azarenka is going to give you the headlines. And so I was very interested to hear what she had to say about that. And so had had a very um, perhaps controversial take about shortening matches, which I'm sure people on the internet loved, but um, <laughs> it was interesting to hear it. I don't know if I agree to it, but it was, a, it was an interesting take. Yeah, no, I, it was a really good piece. Everyone should go read it again. You did a fantastic job in the press room and I have more questions to ask you as it relates to the U S open, but we'll just save that for a pod later this week as I'm getting the signal from West off that it's time to rock and roll here in Cleveland. So as always a shout out to you, DK for taking the time to join us. Any final thoughts? 
No, just I only have questions for Westoff. I don't have yes. any more questions for you. That's what I like to hear. Well, then, speaking of him, what sort of editing job does he have to do today? He does a fuck of an editing job. Day in, day out. <laughs> Makes it all possible here. A shout out to him. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point. Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, that's all things Cincinnati, folks. For the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all next time. Thank you as always, my friend. Das Vidania.